Thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. Um, I'm so happy that Murmurs will host this event. Morgan and Allison have been so amazing at creating community, and I think so many of us feel that about Murmurs already, and it's such a new space that I'm so honored to participate here. We are celebrating um, me creating my own version of TED Talks tonight. Um, I started the podcast a year ago because... I believe in the art of conversation, and I feel like speaking to one another sometimes allows us to wonder and be curious in a way that writing and communicating more directly can feel like really final or truth-based. Conversations can be silly, and as a talk show host, I get to ask questions, which I think a lot of us are afraid to do a lot of the time. So I hope you all feel really comfortable asking questions tonight. Uh, we're going to begin with a couple of performances and then move into the true tyranny talks of it all to my right. Um, first up, we have Amelia Kashiro Hamilton. Amelia is such a good friend of mine. She's also the founder of Sisters with Invoices, which is... Um, a community group in LA that supports marginalized creatives in a number of ways and has amazing programming that you should all check out. Amelian is also a wardrobe stylist, a painter, a writer, and a performer. And tonight she's going to share a little bit of all of that. So I'll let her explain the rest. Please welcome Amelian. If you want to hold this, you kind of pop it up. How are you guys today? Feeling good? I'm feeling good. I just turned 36. Thank you, Tierney. It's Capricorn season. It's slash Aquarius season. It's our time. It's our time. All right. So, Tierney, you did a really excellent introduction. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, I founded Sisters with Invoices, um, but my main... My main thing is wardrobe styling, and um, in that, I've had to kind of shed this identity that I've had with being able to perform uh, and give rich people with ideas their aesthetic, like half of a mood board. Um, And now I'm moving into community with sisters, And before that, I was on a really interesting, I've been on a really interesting pursuit for the past five years trying to find community. Um, But one of the through lines in my life is uh, karaoke. Karaoke has always been my form of community before um, anything. And it'll always be my through line because I think it's important to have a hobby, like especially as a creative, I think it's important to have your yourself in something else so karaoke is my hobby um and I also do performance art dressing too and it's been a minute since I've done it and I'm really excited to share this opportunity thank you for the opportunity tyranny always see me and put me into your curatorial practice so so what I'm going to do is I have a blog that um is funny that I went on a tangent in 2017 and I haven't wrote since but I read these essays aloud um, and uh, it's called scarybradshaw.com because I feel like I'm half Scary Spice and half Carrie Bradshaw, minus like the weird relationship stuff. I just like the way she dresses, and I like 
like that she's a sex writer, but I don't like her relationship drama. That's why I'm celibate, because I just can't. That's what celibate means. So um, look, it in the di- look it up in the dictionary, and you'll see it there. Um, so, um, so I have this thing that it just sits there if you want to ever read this. Um, so I'm going to read you an essay that I wrote, and it's called Karaoke Can Make America Great Again. Um, so I'm a self-possessed karaoke addict. My first experience doing karaoke was in Alaska when I was around 18. I had a Korean girlfriend named Yoon, who was about 10 years older than me, and we became friends working as lady cashiers on the local, local Air Force Base. My soul was ripe enough to be in the company of more mature friends, though I wasn't old enough to go to the bars with them, which was a total bummer in my boring little city of Anchorage, Alaska. One night she took our other misfit co-workers and myself to an unmarked wooden building, and my life changed forever. Yoon spoke Korean to the woman behind the empty can- counter. There was no menu, there were no lights, or any sign of a business existing on the inside. She soon walked us to a small room with a complete karaoke setup, and I was hooked. The owner of the bar served us alcohol with no questions asked, and the secret enclave became our little oasis, and we would sing the night away until 5 a.m. Alaska summers are beautiful as the sun would shine almost all day, and we would hug and part ways in broad daylight after long nights in the karaoke den. I was an outspoken and defiant young lady when I was in high school, but a late bloomer in other ways. I had no problem publicly speaking against the teen curfew, almost causing an uprising in our small little theater. Once I threw a gigantic soda at a known group of racist white kids hanging over the lunchroom balcony who thought it was funny to throw food at my table of, uh, I'm sorry, throw a soda at my table of multicultural girlfriends. I stood on the table and launched launched at them with zero thought or consequence, another, a fountain coke. Uh, and it exploded everywhere as the instigators scattered like the cockroaches they were. Miss Cheryl, who was one of the school security guards, a funny woman with beautiful dark skin and one not to be toyed with, snatched me up with the quickness. And she knew I was a firecracker, and Miss Cheryl made it look like I was in trouble but always let me go with zero consequences. My point is that, though I had no problem speaking up, I was shy in the way of local rites of passages, being a young African-American girl. I didn't learn how to dance until I was 15 years old, and I was stiff as a board and always found a a way to avoid freak dancing. In junior high, chicks would be upside down, pussy popping on a handstand, freaking to Uncle Luke at the Russian Jack Chalet, a local hangout on the weekends. And I would hide or stay far away and watch in awe. I never had any thought of joining theater, and the perspective of the arts in my upbringing was simply painting, ceramics, or drawing. I had no inkling on the art behind dancing, singing, or acting, unless it was breakdancing. We listened to music, and I was exposed to a lot of great music growing up, but I was petrified of dancing. Singing or performing in public? No way. I had a little rhythm by the time I was 18. Once I got, the, got on the mic, my shyness got smaller and smaller. Karaoke built my confidence. It lifted my spirits, and I didn't have to take myself so seriously at all, and karaoke gave me an escape to be silly, to be a comedian, to be free in the moment with my equally silly friends. And I experienced public karaoke the first two years when I lived in L.A., and it changed my life. And I was and still am in awe of the talent I witness in these spaces, although not talented, Um, in the spirit of fearlessness, I witness as well. 
doing karaoke solely in public spaces is my absolute favorite. Fast forward 15 years later, and I'm still that silly free woman who loves to be vulnerable and in the moment, as karaoke still serves that purpose. It's not for attention. It's the camaraderie that intrigues me and envelops me. Everyone is on the same level. People come in of all colors, ages, shapes, vocal skills, and occupations. People with everyday jobs and people who sing for a living with all on the same playing field. And we compliment each other, and we clap for each other, and we champion a complete stranger. And we cheer for the sheer, sheer passion of exuding from someone who sings like the rent is due. And I crave and I enjoy engagement. And nightclubs aren't what they used to be. And a night on the town is fun depending on the company that you keep, though most of the time the pretentious energy leaves me feeling exhausted and bored. And I leave karaoke feeling fulfilled. Now nightclubbers are too cool to dance. Nobody dances anymore. And I'm not getting dressed to the nines only to stand in a room with people who are looking at each other, gossiping about a celebrity sighting, standing around and looking at their social media, texting whatever the whole time. Zero engagement is a recipe for boring. No matter where I go in the USA or in the world, I have managed to find a karaoke spot. I've done karaoke in London, Paris, Chanhassen, Minnesota, Oklahoma City, Oakland, New York, and the list goes on. And last year in Switzerland, this is in 2017, I was on Switzerland last year, my friend Kesh and I couldn't find a place to do karaoke anywhere. And after going a little crazy installing her immersion exhibition, we made our own little karaoke studio to blow off some steam. And we took turns with the microphone she bought at the electronic store around the corner and plugged it into a little speaker. We scoured YouTube, queuing up songs for one another, taking turns singing in our socks on a mattress, clapping and dancing, championing each other while shipping on our club mates, watching our makeshift one-woman show. And this is one of my favorite memories. My karaoke experience has been the same no matter where I am in the world. And I'll always end up making friends or engage in conversation, even though through language barriers, there is still awkward dancing, hilarious performances, a kiss on the hand from a stranger, and sometimes a duet with a Nigerian Parisian b-boy in Paris. This opened up my love for karaoke as my intuitions powered a little light bulb in my afro. I was experiencing this feeling of familiarity via the undeniable world culture of karaoke bars. When I live closer to my favorite spot in the whole world, the legendary Boardwalk 11 located in West LA, I was there last night for my birthday, I would pop in and do some songs alone. The staff is amazing and kind, and the DJs are equally, if not more, talented, and they all can sing and perform, and they're pretty cool using their various methods of downloading almost any song you can think of, which is unheard of in a karaoke bar. I promise you, not all karaoke DJs are created equal. Stay loyal to your favorite one and never let it go. And there are regulars who come in alone on the weekends just like me, and we greet each other, and we small talk, and we discuss what songs we're doing. And I really miss the safe space and environment this unassuming bar provides. It's a true gem. You can go in on a Tuesday and see individuals spread about, loners just like me who just want to let off some steam from a shitty day and do a few songs. And I usually do do wop that thing by Lauren Hill or Diggable Planets. That's where I was at that time when things are different. On a low night like Tuesday, it's okay to assume a melancholy tone hangs over the room and my database of songs will reflect as such. Tracy Chapman, Jewel, Mary J. Blige works. In fact, I enjoy this, and it's like a jazz club. The audience performs and leaves their woes on the stage. And on Friday or Saturday, I will more likely wrap my ass off, ranging from Nicki Minaj, Nas are too short. I have a solid crew of amazing friends who equally love karaoke, and shout out to my bays, y'all know who you is. We plot our outings, hyper-discussing our playlists we create and practice during the week. 
what new songs we are excited to try. And some nights it's too competitive to do a new song, and it's necessary just to do an old faithful and slay. We dote on each other after every performance with hugs and high fives, complimenting strangers who did a stellar job, or we're just plain hilarious. Running to the small dance floor to show our support with body rolls, we congregate at our table and discuss what songs we should do, what works best according to the mood of the crowd in that moment, and I love these moments, and I will absolutely cherish them until the day I die. And in contrast, I have friends and have been in relationships where my partners hate karaoke, and guess what? I understand. It's not for everybody. But I'm still that annoying bitch who tries to convince them to just do one song, please. I just can't help myself. I recently told a new comrade that I love karaoke so much that I sometimes go alone. And I was somewhat expecting him to either laugh or ask me why or tell me how weird it was. And he is a gentle soul, so I should have given him the benefit of the doubt that his reaction would be kind. And he found my passion completely endearing and adorable, laughing. And I sensed a smile in his voice note. And he compared it to someone who may love the stars so much she drives alone to a cliff nightly just to take a gaze. This at first confused me. Was he serious or was he joking? And he convinced me he was serious and really did find it completely endearing. How poetic. So karaoke can make America great and good. Karaoke is engaging and it spans all races and is practiced all over the world. It's one of the most culturally diverse activities available in hundreds of languages. And the world sings the songs, the music that comes from our artists, African-American and beyond, and American products and talents. And though Japanese in origin, the word karaoke translates globally. Music is a universal language. And putting our heart on a stage, the song reverberates through a dusky, dark room and enters those who want to feel something, anything. And sometimes it's a total bomb, but humility is good for the soul. And some of us could use a little kick. I'm just saying. I think practicing public karaoke and facing head-on the fear of being judged in public is good for the soul. Messing up a Warren G song in front of strangers is very good for you. Okay? You heard it here first. I laugh at myself all the time, and I try something new, and laughing, humility, and moving on is worth the embarrassment. So participating in karaoke is an excellent exercise that one can do to get back in touch with one's humanity. We are drowning in a digital facade of curated perfection, so just swim back up and just do one song with me. Come on. Okay, so we also have a thing with sisters where karaoke is therapy. And um, so it was really a joy to read this to you guys. Thank you for taking the space. Um, join us. We will be having more karaoke interactions this year. Um, and give me one second. Um, so just so you know, I went to sleep in this last night and I was like, I had to get dressed anyway, so I'm not going to change again for y'all. Um, but, um, I'm about to perform. Um, you see, I'll give, I'll give you a cue in a second. I haven't done this since Fields in Oakland. Allie Madigan's here. Living in a pastime paradise Been spending 
podcast. Um, Next up, I'm going to welcome a really special person that we're lucky to have in Los Angeles. Um, La Pachamami is an artist, a performing artist, a poet. Um, Her work also includes psychedelic exploration that's rooted in her commitment to psychedelic justice. She's a really interesting person to speak to after the program about what you should do to support people less privileged than you if you love tripping on mushrooms like I do. <laughs> I'd love to invite you to the stage, La Pachamami. Thank you for the intro, Tierney. As Tierney said, I'm La Pachamami. I'm so honored to be here with you all tonight. Um, I've been blessed with um, Tierney's friendship for the past few years, for the past decade. Oh my gosh, for the past decade. We met in high school, and uh, Tierney's one of the kindest, most inclusive, welcoming people that reflects the divine energy that I recognize is. Um, an energy that was carried by my mom. And so I'm gonna start with a song that's about my mother. Um, My mother transitioned into the spirit world five years ago, or it's gonna be five years on February 8th. And so just feeling that there's a lot of healing energy happening. And I'm just so grateful that you organized an event that's catalyzing a lot of healing. Um, So yeah, for that divine energy and all of us where we welcome each other into, coexistence. Um, So yeah, this is a subversive song. Alrighty. I'm ready. Thank you, Margo. Se llevaron a mi madre, a mi madre. Se llevaron, se llevaron a mi madre, a mi madre. Se llevaron, se llevaron. A mi madre, a mi madre, se llevaron, se llevaron. A mi madre, a mi madre. Pero a mí me gusta la venganza, 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 me gusta la venganza, pero a mí me gusta la venganza. Thank you, thank you. Um, so a translation for that is, um, they took my, they took her, they took her, they took my mother, dot, dot, dot. But me, I like revenge. But me, I like revenge. Um, so that's, um, that's a incantation to the fall of the medical industrial complex. So my mom's transition into the spirit world really inspired me to explore um, traditional healing, indigenous healing modalities, and um, it, my mom's transition has driven me 
to the wild side, so wild that I um, entered a race, entered a congressional race to unseat a local politician in Congress. Um, I was super inspired by Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And um, I realized that, fuck, there's a lot of barriers for queer people of color to um, make it into the halls of Congress. And uh, I had such a plan. I was really going to cause a scene, but fuck, it's too expensive. Um, but anyways, um, the next song... Um, is also about um, uh, homage to the ancestors. And when there was a drought in California, I think two years ago, um, I participated. And I was also really sad about my mom's transition. There was a drought in California. I was like, fuck, climate change. and So I went to my first um, sweat lodge ceremony, and it was a prayer for water, for rainfall. And it was around the transition, my my mom's um, transition anniversary. And I prayed to her in the sweat lodge, and I started to think of my mom as a rain deity, and I started to pray to my mom for rain. And shortly after, um, there was a lot of people praying for rain at the time, but shortly after, rain fell over California. And so I just really want to uplift that we can pray to our ancestors and we can have really creative processes with how we engage with the spirit world and we can summons... um, we can summons regeneration um, through prayerful song. Um, so, all right, ready. Canta al cielo. translation of that one is sing to the sky, sing to the sky, let go, like just let go of your desire to control or let go of control and let go of pain and just chanting and seeing that has really helped. Um, so yeah, um, I'm really inspired by medicine songs and recently I was introduced to a medicine song that I 
heard a couple of times in, within the span of days and you know I didn't even need to be in ceremony like consuming like a psychoactive plant it was just you can look up medicine songs on YouTube now it's wild what we can access and just you know singing those songs without any psychoactive ingredient and it's still a really transcendent experience um, that can free some stuff from your body um, so okay I'm really inspired by the energy in the room and I'm going to do a song that's literally plur like it's peace, love, unity, respect. I could sense that there's a lot of plur babies here, so we're gonna do a plur song. And this is a cappella. <clears throat> peace, love, unity, respect around the world. Peace, love, unity, respect around the world. Peace, love. I'm searching for that peace, love. I'm yearning for that peace, love. I'm working for that peace, love, unity, respect around the world. Peace, love, unity, respect around the world. Peace, love. I'm searching for that peace, love. I'm yearning for that peace, love. I'm working for that peace, love, unity, respect around the world. Peace, love, unity, respect around the world. Peace, love. I'm searching for that peace, love. I'm yearning for that peace, love. I'm working for that peace, love. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm really excited for the other speakers of the night, so I'm just going to do one more song just to make you laugh. I just want to see people laugh. <laughs> Trying to bring that laughter medicine, goals for 2020. <laughs> so... So the plot, oh, thank you so much. Um, the plot right now, so yeah, running, being in a congressional race was a lot. And, um, you know, I had a plan if I was going to make it into D.C., but plans changed. So now we're going to do burlesque and cabaret, and we're going to try to disarm. <laughs> we're going to try to disarm, demilitarize through the erotic. <laughs> Yes, it's going to try to seduce our way to peace, love, unity, respect around the world. <laughs> Yay! So um, there was this one time where, like, Milo Yiannopoulos, one of the alt-right, like, loser freaks, who's deprived of something in his life. Anyway, so he was going to speak at UC Berkeley and expose a list of undocumented students. And... Um, Bay Area anti-fascists really showed up and they like literally set UC Berkeley's, uh, part of UC Berkeley's campus on fire. And I was just, there was like another, there was a few brawls in uh, Berkeley with um, fascists and white nationalists and Nazis, whatever you want to call them. And so I started to think, what if there was a soundtrack to like alt-right um, demonstrations and counter demonstrations and so that's where this song was inspired it was birthed in September 2017 and I've just started to perform it publicly recently um, so here we go 
You are a little bit freaky, you genesis, baby, yeah. You are a little bit freaky, you genesis, baby, yeah. Fear thy not, we're all a little fucked up. Fear thy not, we're all a little fucked up Let's have some fun under the sun Allowing our minds to become undone It'll be super fun We'll get real freaky We'll get real freaky We'll get real freaky You are my other me You are my other me Hurt me and you will bleed. Hurt me and you will bleed. Hurt me and you will bleed. Let's be legends. We all want to be a legend. You are a little bit freaky, you genesist, baby. Yeah. You are. A little bit freaky, you genesis, baby, yeah. Fear thy not, we're all a little fucked up. Fear thy not, we're all a little fucked up. Let's have some fun under the sun. As we dissolve into dust, become one. It'll be super fun. We'll get real freaky. We'll get real freaky, we'll get real freaky You are my other me You are my other me Hurt me and you will bleed Hurt me and you will bleed Hurt me and you will bleed Let's be legends, we all want to be a legend Hurt me and you will bleed Let's be legends, we all want to be a legend Thank you, I'm La Pachamami <laughs> And I'm super grateful to heal with you in 2020 Let's be friends, let's bring that peace, love, unity, respect Around the world <laughs> Thank you, La Pachamami. Definitely the most plur political candidate of all time. And if you want to learn more about Paula's congressional journey, you can listen to an episode of Tyranny Talks where we get all into it as well as Como Visiones Ancestrales, which is Paula's nonprofit that deals with psychedelic medicine rights. Is it Katy Perry? Um, so we're going to begin the real talk, the talking program now. Um, I'm so excited to um, invite to the stage Fatima Iqbal Zubir. Fatima is a candidate for state assembly, and I bet most of us don't know anything about that, so let's find out. <laughs> Fatima, thank you so much for being here. With these um, non-handheld microphones, it's really like we're on the TED Talk stage now. It's fabulous. I'm happy to be here. It's so great to like meet all of you. I love this group of people. Diversity is like so important in so many ways. So, um, you are a candidate for Assembly District 64. Mm -hmm. 
and I think it's safe to assume that most of us really don't know what the State Assembly does, let alone what District 64 encompasses. Do you want to begin by describing a little bit about uh, the race you're experiencing and what that position would ultimately give you access to do? Yeah, sure. So yeah, the truth is like, you know, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to say this, I didn't know the district number I was living in, because I don't know if most of you all know one until you get to the ballot, right? And um, so state assembly, I think of it like kind of like California's version of Congress, right? So we each have, uh, there's different districts encompassing different cities, and it's like it's usually smaller than a congressional district, but I would represent District 64, which is like eight or nine cities in California, um, in Sacramento. So what that means is like, you know, the, the sexy political news is usually like, you know, Trump, right? It's usually Trump and like what's happening in Congress and AOC and stuff like that. But a lot of our funding actually comes from the state level. Like 95%, I believe, or more of education funding is from the state level, right? Private prisons, right? A lot of that funding is from the state level. Um, and, you know, like even just like, you know, the Green New Deal, it's easier to do those kind of things at the state level. And so there's a lot of power. Like you, I could bring like, you know, $100 million down to my district from the state level. So that's what it encompasses. It just means like you can bring increased resources and funding um, to your congressional district. And ultimately, you can also change law in California, right? Because even though I'd be representing my district, I'm really going there to really cause good trouble, right? I want to, I feel like what's happening at the state assembly is not pushing the bar far enough. Um, I feel like progressives are still too careful in how they talk. I feel like um, they don't really call. Um, Welcome. You know, I feel like if you're a Democrat, you have to just side with Democrats. And I feel like, you know, like my opponent in a recent forum lied about me, you know. Um, I mean, not that, well, so not that you have to, you know, be a Democrat your whole life, but I, I've been a Democrat my whole life, but he literally said I became a Democrat only when I filed. And to think that people have to run and lie to get into office, like, I'm just running because I hate the way politics is done, and I want to do it, I want to do the way it should be done, right? So, totally. Thank you. Why do you think um, people hate politics so much? <laughs> yeah, I think it's for the reasons I said, right? Um, so, they just feel so disconnected from it, right? Like. I'm, I'm sure if I asked most of you, like, who your assembly man or woman is, probably wouldn't know, right? And I don't blame you. And it's because it's not connected to who you are. It's seen as different from impacting your life when, when things really do impact your life. You talk about, like, rights, like, you know, trans rights and healthcare for all and things like this. Like, this, it does impact your life, right? And I'm, I'm sure, like, this crowd understands that. But at the same time, like, you might understand the, the grassroots organizing efforts, but you don't really know, you know, your representative who can really change the law, right? And I think that's missing, and I don't, I don't blame people for that. Um, so I think that's why they're disconnected. They just, it's, it's really a sport. I don't think sure Paul can agree with this, too, the experiences we went through, but it is a sport of the elite. It is a sport. Like, I'm a public school teacher and like in Watts, and it's a sport where, like, my students wouldn't be able to enter it right now in the system, right? And we wonder why things like homelessness don't get solved, and we wonder why old refineries increase under Gavin Newsom. It's because people actually experiencing these problems can't get elected, right? So that's why I think they feel removed. Totally. To who they are. I know as a candidate, you've spoken about wanting to bring a sense of intimacy and vulnerability to how you represent yourself, which... Of course, a lot of the time we think of politicians as political machines more so than humans in terms of some of their behavior or mm -hmm. approaches to communication. Um, how does it feel to open up yourself so vulnerably and honestly um, to the world at large in service of your campaign? Yeah, um, 
Yeah, so I think, you know, like what, what I try to do is, like, I think it's so important to talk about your individual mental health, your individual struggles with, like, you know, uh, religion or sexuality and things like that. I think those things are so important and politicians don't do that enough. Um, and, you know, one thing I'm trying to do is I have these, I go live on, on Facebook, like, and Instagram every week. And, you know, sometimes my son walks in, you know, and, and sometimes... Um, you know, uh, like things aren't perfect, right? Like, uh, you know, my office is in my home and things like that. And it's, you know, but it, I think that vulnerability like makes you relatable. And like, and I'm not doing that to just win. I, I'm just doing that because like I said, I want to change the way politics is done. Um, and I think, like, I'm going to just talk about it. Like, I, I, I was born Muslim, you know, I didn't always, um, you know, I was, you know, I'm sure a lot of you experience with religion, like where it's kind of just like structured and you're like, you, you, started to lose trust and I went through that for like five six years of my life you know and, and to this day even though I look re like religious I don't believe in organized religion I don't believe in you know, going to mosques or anything like I don't I don't like it scares me actually when I have you have a group of people just like with a lack of it's like group think right you have a lack of diversity of ideas that scares me we have Muslim local politicians it happens at the um, at the you know state level we no more talking about LGBTQ rights but what really troubles me is I have family and running for school board and state politics and if you're, if you're Muslim, like I'm sure you guys feel this in your different identities, right? You can't talk about certain things and kind of like what you talked about. And I don't think that's right. Like, you know, um, I, I, I post what I'm in support of and I, you can't be hidden about it. And you can't, like, if you're really for human rights, you have to be for all human rights. I think what we, what we notice is that if you're, you know, a lot of times in, you know, uh, I guess, I don't know the right word for it, but like, you know, institutionalized, like a society is, is a word, I don't know if that's even a word, but it's like, you know, if you're, um, if you're a Muslim, you can only care about Muslim lives. If you're white, you can care about white lives, right? But if I'm, if I'm Muslim, like, to me, like, a black life that dies or a trans, you know, a trans person that suffers is honestly equally as important to me as a child dying in Palestine, right? And I'm being honest, I don't see this a lot from the Muslim community. Um, uh, I don't see that, you know, and I think it's normal because we identify, right? It's this whole issue of, like, if you're white, you, we identify with, you know, white kids that die but we don't identify with kids overseas that are dying. And I think if we don't, like if I don't talk about it as someone in a position of power, that's never gonna change. We need to really, if we care about human rights, we need to talk about every life, even if they look nothing like you and they don't believe in the things like you do. That, that life is equal. One example I would use is, you know, you guys might have heard this, but if there's two buildings on fire, and I have a son who I adopted from Morocco, and I, my, husband, if my husband and son were in one building and my students were in the other, I tell my students this story all the time. If there were 100 students in that building and just my husband and son, I would save that building, right? Because if you think about it in society, why do we just value our family members, right? Those people in there have husbands and children and brothers and sisters. Why is their family not as important as mine? It starts with that, right? We gotta check who we really care about. And so, I don't know, I, I kind of deterred from the question. No, it's but, amazing. But like, I don't know. I think one big piece of your campaign process, right, is canvassing. And I know you also have a list of voters that you tend to just call up. Um, I'm really curious, how do those conversations go? And um, you mentioned speaking and including so many different types of voices. Um, is it entertaining, scary, weird to encounter so many different political philosophies and identities? Um, like in service of your campaign on the regular? I, I think it's fun when I meet someone who thinks the opposite of I do. Um, I would like love to talk to someone who like voted for Trump, and I have actually. And I, I think this is, that's the, it's the best conversations I've had. Um, I think we need to be able to talk to people who think like nothing that we think, like, you know? 
Um, and I think that's a scary thought. I think it's easy in liberal circles too, in progressive circles, right? Um, to be in a cult-like mentality that happens all across the board. Like I know we talk about it on the right, but I'm just gonna say it happens on the left. It happens everywhere. Um, it's why we have two parties that are like, oh, we need to make sure we have Democrats. No, it's not about Democrats. It's whoever if you care about people, right? That's what it should be about. Um, so I, I actually enjoy it. Like I, I like talking to people that think different than me. Um, you know, as um, someone who's not bought up, right, um, by the party or, or by these corporations, um, I think it's like people really want someone who cares about them, and they might not believe in everything you believe in, but. They just care that you're listening to them and you're there for them. That's all they really want. A lot of people don't even ask me what my policy positions are. But if you're there listening to them, and you know, um, that's, that's really what they care about. So I, yeah, I love it. I have um, people that voters that I call, um, you know, and it's sad because I, I, I'm representing one of the, I would represent one of the, the six poorest assembly district. And it's like, um, no one, I've knocked on so many doors and no one's ever had someone come to their door um, and just ask them. <laughs> You know, like, what do you care about? And it's it's crazy. Like, I, you know, I hope I can, I can, you know, I'm just one person, but I hope, you know, more people, and I, there are, like, great people, like, running like that, and just need more of those people, you know? Totally. Yeah. You brought up um, systemic racism, right. but environmental racism, how does that play oh, out in also, your district? Right. Thank you. Oh, yeah. So everything, everything I have in my platform is pretty much what my students and my families experienced. Um, I'm just, you know, going to be really real here. Like the education system was made to see uh, black and Latino students end up in prison, right? That's just a fact. You're not meant to pipeline. succeed. You're not meant to, huh? Pipeline. Yeah, pipeline. Yeah, you're not meant to. And if you do make it out, you know, that's great. But it's not talked about like that, you know. And I wanted to talk about it like that. I wanted to be very real with it, real, very real about it. Even if it upset people, you know, I'll share a story. I, I went to Kadem for the first time, um, the Cal California Democratic Convention Day. And it was, it's like, you, you feel that, you feel that, like, even among progressives, you feel this, you know, this energy, right? And I was, uh, when I started talking about systemic racism, I wasn't even talking about myself, I was talking about the stories in the community, how there's, like, lead toxicity happening at my school with a thousand kids, and I was cut off, you know, a bunch of times, and it was for time, but then one of the times it was when, it was so, like, it was when uh, Tom Steyer walked in and Cheng Uger, is his name, walked in. It just reminded me about, like, you know, owner, you to stop because they're here. Like, corporate, th those stories are more important than the stories about, like, you know, the families. And um, so I just wanted to be very real. I didn't want to, you know, um, I didn't want to, sure, like, sugarcoat anything, like, all the issues. You know, I wanted to just talk about, like, you know, there's one of my fr uh, friend's nephews is on a lifeline after an accident is using a GoFundMe to try to stay alive. Like, and I think it's crazy, right? You shouldn't have to do that. Um, so it, it's really informed by like what I what I see in the communities I worked in. Amazing. And I feel like you've also had a pretty global life experience in terms yeah. of places you've lived and also education. How do you think that impacts the um, perspective you bring to this LA-based election? Yeah, that's a loaded question because I've lived in so many places. Um, I'm a transplant from so many places. So. I'm um, Sri Lankan by heritage, and Sri Lanka is like a, you know, I love what you guys talking about, like Eastern medicine, because it's, it's actually a Buddhist country, and even though I'm Muslim, I, I love the Buddhist tradition, and, you know, meditation, and Eastern medicine, Ayurvedic medicine. Um, I use a lot of that for myself, you know, I don't like regular pharmaceuticals. Um, and so, yeah, so just like, you know, having that heritage, right? And then um, I was actually born in Dubai in the Middle East. Um, not when it, it looks like now, it's... You know, there's so much inequality happening there now, but um, 
I was born there, so I had that experience for seven years of my life. And then when the Gulf War happened, flee to Canada. So when I was in Canada, I experienced like healthcare, right? I experienced like everyone having healthcare, no one complaining about healthcare, you know, <laughs> never getting bills in the mail, right? Um, and uh, yeah, and I just like you know, the, you know, Canada has 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 their awful relationship with like the indigenous people, right? Still, but I just remember I actually lived in the prairies. I lived in this town called Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. You probably never heard of it. You probably never heard of Toronto. It was like in the prairies, and it was literally me surrounded by like a bunch of white kids, you know? But the funny thing is I never realized the color of my skin. I was never made to feel different. It's when I moved to New Jersey, um, to America, that I really felt race relations. And I don't know if any of you guys had that experience like living somewhere else, but I felt this real race relations, especially after 9-11, I felt... Then, so I'm talking about like my journey there here. Like I, um, I had like a Quran thrown at me. I had, you know, I was in college when, when 9-11 happened, and... Uh, I, um, yeah, like my mom went through some stuff. We had people spit on us. And I'm not trying to, to me, it's nothing like the black experience. It's nothing like a lot of experiences, but it's just about um, respecting everyone, right? And just lost some of that, right? Um, and uh, yeah, then um, moving to California. And I think one thing I experienced here, and I don't know if I don't offend because I know a lot of you love California, but there's just the greatest in income inequality here. I just saw very, very wealthy. And I saw, like, it's nothing like I even saw in New Jersey because I went to public school my whole life. And you know, yes, I grew up mostly middle class, but I, even my friends that, you know, were not too well off went to good public schools. But in California, I noticed that they were segregated. Like, I, why is it that I only taught, like, kids that were black and Latino, right? Like, Brown versus Board of Education happened. That shouldn't be happening, but let's talk about the truth. That did nothing for America, right? Uh, schools are actually more segregated now, you know, than in many states than they were before. And that's, that's what I mean by, like, just talking about it. Like, even some of the most progressive politicians aren't, aren't saying these things, you know? Um, what do we do to desegregate schools, right? Because we, when we have schools that are integrated, we have, it's, it's just, there's more resources, but that's not what's happening. Um, it's because we don't care about kids that are black and Latino. You know, that's what we're telling them, right? Right. We don't care about it enough to talk about it. Yeah, I feel like you do a really interesting job of speaking about public school, especially in communities that are mostly black and brown, as yeah. a site of, like, possible reparations or at least yeah. that kind of intentionality about those schools should be actually receiving even more resources, really, yeah. right, if you look at the history of America. Yeah. For sure, um, and and like you know, discussing this with my husband's like my unofficial campaign manager. Yeah, <laughs> we share a lot. A lot of my policies develop in like conversations after my son goes to bed with him. It's crazy. Like, yeah, it's not. It's not a research. boardroom. Yeah, he he is like the best part of us. Where he wanted me to run, and he he just. He, he says, I want you to run because, you know, then my ideas will come. But you're the better popul like, populist candidate. I'm boring. But I want to get my <laughs> ideas through you. So, <laughs> like, Beautiful. Are, yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. So, you know, um, it's, it's going to be tough because when I, like I said, I want to cause this good trouble when I go up there. But, you know, a lot of schools in, in, in different in zip codes that, you know, don't have kids that are um, Latinx and black have these have ed funds. Right. So they have parents, you know, through generational wealth and just systemic wealth. Right. From from the color of your skin. Right. Or um, um, even me, like Asian is like the you know wealthiest my own. Even there's more Asians in, in a school. Right. You're going to have parents that can donate hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars. And that's like exactly how you have art programs. And that's exactly how you have science and robotics programs. And you have like a swimming pool. Right. It's, you know, it's, that's really how it is. It's because the parents of the community can make the school better. It's why teachers there get paid more. It's why the best teachers don't work in the poorest districts, which is like so messed up, right? Um, yeah, so I want it to be equitable. I, I really just feel like, you know, part of our, our, 
And we can apologize for what America has done, but part of what we need to do is we need to put more money into certain districts. I'm sorry, like, if those, like, like you know, if Watts has less than 3% college education and you have Redondo Beach that has, like, you know, I think, like, over 70, 80%, why the heck are they, you know, getting almost the same money? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, does it make sense to you guys? I mean, does it make sense to me? So we need to, like, funnel a lot more resources. Um, but you know, the sad part is I just going around, I also see a lot of corruption happening at the school board level and the city council level. And this is why, why I'm saying like, to me, I'm not a, a basher of different races because like I learned, um, you know, working as a teacher, okay, this is kind of a deterrent. But Go for it's okay, it. okay, but like, so after 2016 when Trump got elected, I had students that were undocumented. I had, you know, like a lot of my families were going through these things like very real, right? Like I couldn't teach for two days because I, I had to just respect what my, my kids and families were going through. Um, a lot of these policies affect people that aren't middle class. That's just the truth. They affect my, my kiddos that work in, I work for in Watts. And, um, you know, after 9-11, an interesting thing happened at our school. So we had, you know, we had white teachers at our school. We have teachers of color. And I kind of fell in the middle of this debate because I, I didn't like where it was going. I think there was just a lot, like a microcosm that was happening. It, it was a lot of talk about colonization and this and that. And, and um there was a move, I'm just gonna say this, and I hope I don't offend anyone here, but um, I don't think I will in this room. But um, mm -hmm. there was a push by a lot of black teachers and Latino teachers, and I'm just gonna say it, to push the white teachers out of the school. And I, I didn't like any of that that was happening. I brought it up to you know, uh, the, the, the district. Um, because it's interesting though, because the generation that I taught inspired me, because a lot of the kids would come up to me and say, you know, Ms. Zubair, I, I love Ms. Lowe, like what's happening? She's getting pushed out, isn't she? Why is her and Ms. Upshaw, why are they getting pushed out? They're some of the best teachers. And um, so I think it's about really like, you know, your song about being allies in this. Um, you know, don't, not letting the hate and the greed divide us up by race. I think it's about all of us just recognizing what privilege is in all its forms. You know, I, I, a lot of politicians use the story of being an immigrant and, you know, I'm an immigrant, but coming from a low-income community, I, what I do is the opposite. I actually call out my privilege, you know? I say I grew up middle class. That gave me things that my kids didn't have. That's not the cool thing to do in politics, but I think we need to call out our privilege, you know? Um, yeah, so I, I know I deterred, but I, but I wanted to talk about that. And, I, you know, in, in that whole mini microcosm of after Trump, what happened in my school, you know, I remember one of our white teachers walked out and I walked out with her. I, I said, I'm, you know, I gave her a hug and I said, you know, you're a really good teacher and I want you to know, like, I wish you were still here, you know? And um, what, something else I also learned, like, you know, when I was leaving um, school, because now I'm just doing my campaign, um, there was a teacher of a, you know, it was, it was an African-American teacher who honestly talked about my kids and said some kids are stupid and use these kind of words. So what I learned from this, and it, it taught me, because I went in there thinking I'm Asian, I don't look like my students, they're not gonna relate to me, but what I learned is it's not the color of your skin that determines that you see humanity in everyone, right? You could be a black teacher looking at a black student and thinking that they're stupid and thinking that they can't do work, and that's awful. But you could be a white teacher and think that this could, could achieve the world and understand your privilege, right? And so while we need more teachers of color, you know, yes, in these schools, but what we need, I would argue more of, is teachers that can see humanity in everyone. It doesn't matter what the color of the skin is, right? So, yeah, so. Amazing. I, in terms of running your campaign, I know this is your first campaign for political office, so one piece of it is I'm just curious about anything that surprised you along the way, but I also, I know you phrased it as your campaign doesn't attract corporate interests, um, but what is it like running a campaign that doesn't have that corporate finance aspect that we're pretty used to. Yeah, um, so what does it mean? Right? So, yeah. yeah, so, um, you know, 
sure you guys all, you know, of the presidential ovals, right? Like, you know, Bernie Sanders and, you know, starting this. And um, he, his campaign really inspired me, right, to do this, because I don't think before that it was really talked about. Um, what does it mean is that you're going to make a lot of people angry, but you're making the right people angry, so that's good, right? As long as you're making the right people angry, it's good trouble, and you should keep doing it. Um, so when I started talking about it, and unfortunately, a lot of these things don't get talked about in poorer districts. Like, I was thinking about it in my district, ironically, which needs a really progressive candidate. The candidates have been so corporate, like so corporate. Like, you know, I, Nanette Bargan is a congresswoman for my district. Mm -hmm. um, and I asked her a question, because she, you know, she was endorsed by, by our, our revolution um, when the first time she ran, but I asked her a question at Town Hall, because I, I, I thought she wasn't taking corporate PAC money, and to find out she is taking some corporate PAC money, and you know, she's not taking fossil fuel money, or you know, things, this is not you know, maybe as bad, but it's like, do, I, don't, I haven't met a single candidate, honestly, from the city to the congressional level who's not taking corporate money, which is crazy, because like, like I said, these policies affect poor people the most, right? And like, it's like you need these candidates in those spaces. Um, so what's it been like is it's been, I think a lot of people that have been seeing me on accounting are really refreshed by it. They're like, wow, no one talks about tuition-free college, but we could really use that, you know? Right. Um, yeah, no one uh, talks about income inequality and us being the richest state in the world and we should, richest state in the country and we shouldn't have homelessness, but we do. Like, no one says it like that. They just talk about, oh, here's my policy, here's my solutions, but you don't really call out, like, the BS that's happening, right? Like, the, this, this should not be happening in California. We're the fifth largest economy. Why do we have a single person on the streets, right? Right. It's, yeah. And the income inequality, by the way, is growing. So you have the wealthier getting wealthier, you have the poor getting poorer. It's not... It's not going, it's not, it's not slimming, it's growing, so. Well, as we wrap up, I wanna reiterate the point that came up at the beginning, which is even, although some of us might live in District 64, um, whether we do or not, it's really worthwhile to support candidates like yourself because you, you can give us the opportunity to have this legislation introduced and supported in a way that even maybe our own local district representative wouldn't. Um, so I really encourage all of you to check out the table over here before we leave. It has some um, election materials, buy a shirt, you know, um, Venmo, Fatima, <laughs> uh, if there's any corporate investors here. No. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. We're going to hold questions until the end of the conversations, but um, everyone's going to be hanging around after, so please, uh, if you have a chance, introduce yourself and find out ways that maybe you can offer your own creative skills and support this share campaign. Can I one quick blurb? Yeah. Yeah, so um, my flyer has my website, so because I'm not ex accepting corporate donations, even like a $10, you know, $20 donation helps, and just the way you could do it is, so my shirts, I'm not allowed to say like I'm selling it, but like, like if you donate twenty nine dollars, so it's campaign finance. Creating right? shirts yeah. that so are you, available. Yeah. In yeah, the space. If you if you donate twenty nine dollars, uh, you you get a shirt. And my graphics actually really cool on the back. I actually uh, show you know the inequalities of oil refineries in our district and college education. So it's it's actually a cool graphic in the back that I actually paid someone to design specifically um, for the campaign. So yeah. So you could, uh, yeah, talk to me, you know, um, after my, you could also go to my website and just donate, um, yeah. Don't bother talking, just go to that website. <laughs> and well, I say hi, no, I know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Right, you. I really appreciate you coming. Thank you, guys. Amazing. Um, so many of you have checked out the show next. In the next room, Built to Scale. Built to Scale is Emily Barker's solo exhibition, and 
We're lucky to experience it the day before it's closing tomorrow. I just want to point out that tomorrow, um, Emily will be back at Murmurs for an artist talk and also will be celebrating the closing of the exhibition with a Build Your Own Noodle Bar that is being run by Lexi Park and Miu Miu. Um, so, yeah, so if you'd like to come back to Murmurs tomorrow, we're hosting you. Thank you so much for being here, Emily. Yeah, don't get some mics on yet, but okay, there we go. Ooh, hi guys. <laughs> this might be redundant for some of you here, but you're lucky to hear it again. You're lucky to hear it again. Only like five people. Here. It's fine. <laughs> I'm I'm so happy to be able to chat to you about Thank built you. to scale. Uh, will you tell me a little bit about naming and conceptualizing the project and how it sort of began in your mind? Yeah, the installation is meant to um, build, build to scale the feeling that I have in everyday spaces or experiencing um, bureaucracy, austerity, healthcare injustice, scarcity, um, waking up in a world that is no longer suitable for your body and erases your basic capacity to exist and function in space due to uh, concepts of normalcy and standardization that didn't exist before the 1840s. And um, it's an immersive experience. I like to call it a forced perspective um, I'm forcing people to conceptualize and understand that the world is built for them and that it is, uh, it is pretty violent that we do not consider um, my body or my friends' bodies who are also in chairs to be existing. And the only reason that we are not present in most spaces is because um, they are not built to accommodate us. And the only reason that I can take so many pee breaks is because I personally worked with the space who was kind enough to very much understand my bodily experience because people who organize and direct this space have personally carried me. <laughs> so they understand the weight of my body and like my needs and um, that I am one of like 26 million people in the US who are not seen or able to experience any built environment due to not being able to simply walk. And that is frankly just unacceptable. And uh, I can't show it many spaces because they're inaccessible. And um, this conversation often is uh, denied validity as uh, I should be so grateful to have a community that supports me and um, makes my body an acceptable thing to live in uh, because most people just would expect me to move in with my parents and live at home, even though both of their homes are inaccessible in the first place and they haven't made accommodations for me. So that's like not a option. option. And so I have to build my own world. And that's been something that uh, I'm really dedicated to on every platform. Thank you. 
And as such an amazing um, artist, writer, educator in a certain way, model, do you feel that you've received opportunities or invitations to create or share work um, that you've been prevented from participating because of accessibility? I um, actually, I had a... Uh, so many experiences where I was not provided basic accommodations and could not show up with brands in LA um, who were not willing to provide basic transportation needs. Uh, and I've been not compensated for a lot of work because people want a virtue signal and like fake um, inclusivity. I had a $3,000 modeling opportunity in New York, but my wheelchair was broken mm. and I couldn't even travel because I had to fight for months to pay a $6,000 copay on a wheelchair that I don't even want to use because the wheelchair that I want is or need for my back is like $16,000 and not covered by insurance. And I would need a $48,000 used vehicle to transport it because it weighs 175 pounds, but I have not till this day been able to go over grass, go on a trail, go on the sidewalk by my house, or go on the beach in the body that I currently live in. And there are mobility devices that can give you that access, but you have to somehow afford the ability to transport that. And the modifications for a car are $30,000 for me to drive and get into one. Wow. And so it's like there's an incredible um, like gap of the capacity to I'm not allowed to save more than $2,000. I'm not allowed to have more than $2,000 in my bank account. Um, there's a lot of things that prevent me from being able to participate uh, that are very much outside of my control. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the cost of my body in space is so exorbitant and more than anyone else's and I know this because I used to be able-bodied that it is I'm so lucky to be able to have friends that will pick my ass up and take me to this venue or to things that I need to go to but I go without going to the doctor without doing a lot of things due to the costliness of of getting that basic need met right and you talking about transportation I know you've um discussed flying. I feel like that's another area where these like invisible uh, like conventions of normalcy or able-bodiedness kind of mask the experience that people have flying. Yeah, I, uh, if uh, many of my friends' uh, electric chairs have been broken flying and they literally cannot get off the plane. Mm -hmm. um, and airplanes, no built space or environment considers the disabled body. Mm. And very rarely do you witness a bathroom or a public space that is accessible. Most museums in LA don't have accessible entrances. People think ramps work, but ramps are exclusionary for me and a lot of other people and walkers and um, for people who have back injuries and shouldn't be pushing up them. I don't have handles on my chair, so I can't really use ramps easily. It's messes up my back, uh, but planes are a horrible, horrible thing to experience um, being a paraplegic. And you mentioned this at the beginning, like whether it was the 1840s or 1860s, but not to drop such a huge question, but 
just this idea of standardizing space uh, within design. Can you describe why, like, the origins of that or how that kind of shift into this coded normalcy began? It's actually my favorite topic. Um, Sir Francis Galton, a eugenicist in the 1840s, um, cousins to Charles Darwin, Mm -hmm. uh, came up with the, um, the whole concept in order to and created the bell curve because it wasn't good enough to have the normal man. We had to make the more perfect man. And so the only way we can do that is by creating the divergent person. So people who are disabled were lumped in with criminals, were lumped in with, um, like, he created the bell curve in order to get rid of the less desired and create the more perfect man under the guise of what is normal or standard. And so his entire philosophy has now been applied to the built environment for industrialization in order to create a profit margin for companies to make the most money off of all of us buying things that may not work for us. And I pay for an apartment that is exorbitantly expensive that I cannot access my shelves in my kitchen or use my dryer or um, turn around in my bathroom. And I pay that much because it is so rare to be able to even, I waited six months to even find a place that I could get my body into. And uh, it's very, very hard. There are no apartments, there are no spaces that I can live in, Mm -hmm. even in like one of the most like progressive states. and I can't live in snow. Mm. And I have to be in a major city because I have six specialists that like take care of this. Right. And like I have a really rare pain disease. So there are all of these things that you have to consider structurally. And the idea of normalcy and standards uh, creates the divergent. And I am the divergent. And so many other people like me and like disability doesn't discriminate. But how often do we see different communities providing resources or care for those who are disabled? We are not on the list. Ableism is never on the list of things that we should care about in progressive society circles. I appreciate the way you speak about um, being able-bodied as a temporary privilege. Will you discuss at all the way that... um, someone that's able-bodied now or, you know, experiences being able-bodied can digress that normative standard as well? My whole thing is that I um, create a lot of fear in people. Um, My my body, my confidence, the way I talk, the way I exist in space invokes fear, which I think is like the first step for someone to experience a type of awakening to recognize the amount of privilege that they've experienced in this world in their body and uh, I was 19 when my accident happened my friend Jackie had her accident um, how many years ago 13 years ago and it could happen to anyone at any moment something like that but what's more common is like an illness or cancer or um, 
you know, whatever, MS, you could get so many things that would cause you to be in my body. And we have so much shame that we, instead of creating a world that encompasses those needs mm -hmm. and prepares for them, old age, yeah. we're all, we're all not going to be able to walk upstairs. Right. Like you're not free unless you die in a plane crash. Like we are all going to experience a point in our lives where we cannot walk up those three steps to our apartment. Right. And, uh, and there's no reason to live in a world that doesn't accommodate for baby strollers, for injuries, for disability, for aging. Uh, we are blinded, not even blinded, but it's like we decide not to see. We make a conscious effort to um, not negotiate that space because it scares us because right. we're afraid of aging and what happens mm -hmm. when that when that comes around and so instead of creating an environment where we're all supported and can exist we just ignore it because it's too scary totally um i'm sure there are plenty of event producers and designers and i know at least one architect it's ali madigan in the room um and while they should all be paying you tons of money for consultancy on these kinds of issues, like... I won't talk to them if they don't. <laughs> I feel like even in fashion, like there's so many ways that people who design things for bodies uh, perpetuate the idea that it's simply too hard to accommodate everybody. That is a fucking lie. So first of all, yes, if you build an inaccessible space or have an inaccessible venue, you're going to have to pay to have accommodations made. Um, but if you go into architecture, if you go into event planning, if you go into production with the idea of accommodating a disabled body in a wheelchair, in a walker, whatever, you will not have to pay up front for that cost. Um, you maybe have to go into it deciding, am I going to pay to use this venue that, it's a, that is accessible or am I going to pay to make accommodations to make it wheelchair accessible? Um, I, for architecture, it's more ridiculous to me because design concepts are free. Mm -hmm. Like this stuff exists online for free. It is not, to build a space that is accessible from the ground up does not cost more money for modifications, but we live in a world where architecture is a dick wagging contest to see how amazing your staircase is, uh, regardless of whether or not <laughs> you can see up someone's skirt who's walking up there. Right. Um, like, or to uh, make an old person or me go around the back of the building to find that the elevator is broken. Um, it is unacceptable to me that we have let this happen for so long and that we continue to let it happen. Totally. Um, so pretty soon we're gonna invite everybody to check out your show for themselves. I'm wondering in conclusion, um, do you want to speak a little bit about some of the items that we'll see in the show that you've repurposed um, in order to exhibit here? Um, everything was, I mean, everything has like a poetic meaning in the show or was like personally fabricated. Um, the only item I have to like navigate the world at this point are like ramps, which I don't 
I can't use because I can't push up them on my own. So I personally hate ramps. Uh, you will be faced with a ramp that will cause you to recognize my feeling when I experience a ramp. It breaks down my body. Um, I, I cannot navigate them on my own and that makes me feel um, powerless. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but feeling powerless is like not something you want to exist as. And that's the constant for every disabled person. And due to ableism and internalized ableism, we think that we deserve that feeling. And, um, and I think it's really sad. Uh, my wheelchair, one of my old ones, rusted from using Chicago, from me shoveling snow to my car to get to school every morning and shoveling out my car. And I didn't realize I was pulling the rods in my spine out of my back, shoveling snow to get to my car. And that wheelchair, like my body, has rusted and broken down um, from overuse. And uh, I think that that piece is very important because it's like, these are two items, a manual wheelchair and a ramp that able-bodied people have designed to solve my problem. And I wish that I could be the one deciding what solves my problem, but I'm not given agency in this world. Um, and so I'm trying to take my agency back because right now the only thing I have to navigate space is uh, the grabbers that you'll see on the wall. And those are two casted copper oxidized grabbers that I hope will become a relic of a time period that I find like pretty barbaric. Um, and that space is not made to only accommodate people who are like the normal 5'9 height uh, I used to be 5'10". <laughs> My dad is 6'7". He can bend over. <laughs> mm -hmm. He can use spaces that are, that are smaller. We can make door heights taller. No one is mad at higher ceilings. Um, but we don't need to make things inaccessible. Um, everything in the... My favorite piece is probably the stack of the 7,800 pieces of paperwork or medical documents and bills from the first three years of my accident, and it's not everything, mm -hmm. um, but it encompasses over $600,000 in the first month of my injury in bills uh, from my accident that I was supposed to pay, um, being a 19-year-old in school. <laughs> uh, and how ridiculous uh, navigating that is, or deciding that someone should have to pay that cost in this country, and dealing with the labor every single day, I listened to that whole tone for like five hours to get a basic ass need met. Um, and I think that's like my favorite room. Uh, but I mean, all the pieces are really important. There's so many other things I could have made. The text pieces, a lot of other situations that I could have created, but you know, there isn't one social interaction or physical interaction in my daily life that isn't clouded with an ignorance and a inability to validate my experience and my body and many other bodies like me that you just don't see because it's too difficult to get around and it's too expensive. Well, thank you so much, Emily. Um, I want to invite everybody to check out Built to Scale in the next room. I also want to thank everyone who participated tonight and all of you for coming. Please stick around. There's such amazing food by Camila Creates. I'm so, woo! 
I'm so happy about that. I'm so happy Murmurs has drinks for us and um, a million and some other sexy people are going to DJ. So please stick around. Thank you so much, Tierney, for thank this. Thank you. And also thank you, Andrea, for doing facials all evening, getting Woo! us plumped for the party. I'm so appreciative for everyone sharing your expertise here. So thank you. Choco mi sostén a rayas y mi pelo a medio se. Pensaste todavía es un niño, pero qué le voy a hacer es lo que andaba buscando. El doctor recomendando, creí que estaba soñando. Oh, oh, de qué me andaba quejando. No sé qué estaba pensando. Voy paseando y voy pateando. Barbita Also, take the Tierney Talks postcards. There's a QR code on the back. Thank you so much to Laura Beth Schneider for designing them. And everybody take one home and give it to somebody else to listen to uh, the podcast. There's also Andrea Amez compact mirrors. So please take one as a token. For weakness Party up Party up Cause I'm not Party That up. bitch you want Party up Party up I treat you like a king Party If up. you can be faithful Yo. Happy tyranny talks But all that bullshit What a celebration You get cut at the yeah, I'ma keep it up cause TT told me to I got my nails done, my hair done, and everything Honey, it was God's work. For you. I'm getting ready so you can pick me up and show me who. Who's that nigga? Bye, Girls, let's be real. Don't you get tired of talking? Love me some 47. Put your money where your mouth is. Homie, walk Tell me you don't like what you see in this lady My hips in my way and my lips I just might let you taste it I got my nails done, my hair done and everything done for you 
And I think I find me a guy who can solve them. Just my type, but but polite. Popping willies on a turnpike. And he treat his mama right. I might call him over the night so he can show the kids. How many y'all fuck the bitch? Stay down when it
Lately, I've been putting pressure on them bitches, no. I was in a rush, I had to fuck them in this two seat. We be on the hush, it ain't a secret, they be can't. Yeah, lately, I've been feeling like my money too long. I can't break it down, cause the weed too strong. She hate on my music, but she still sing along. I bet that bitch gon' diss me in her new hit song. If you waiting on me, please go get a job. I've been stuntin' on them hard, don't need a car. Like a hawk, it ain't money coming out your mouth. You shouldn't even talk. Look, lately I've been thinking about the bag, no nudge. Lately I've been making bitches mad, niggas want me. I was in a rush, I had to fuck them in this two seat. We be on the hush, it ain't a secret that he can't keep. Lately I've been all about my paper, no loose. Lately I've been putting pressure on them bitches, no. Me. I was in a rush, I had to fuck them in this two seat. We be on the hush, it ain't a So I'm kind of dips, got too, too many. many. It's too many different girls in my bed, fucking with my head. Strip clubs, fucking up my bread. Melissa on Monday, Tiffany Tuesday, wildin' out on Wednesday with Wendy in the jacuzzi. Thirsty Thursdays, get 30 bottles of champagne. Sturdy game, we taking over the dead game. Fridays, it's Friday, it's Friday, I'm there, baby. Red bottoms, Chanel bags, and mink coats, they all got them. Mac lip gloss, they put it on, they all popping. She got her own, but fuck it, we still going shopping. Now slow it down, let me show you where my room at. So we can sip Tron in the zone, you try to do that. On the low, shorty blow like a pro, and I kinda knew that. Got chicks, all kind of chicks, got two millies. Two millies, two millies. There's too many in my bed now. I can't help but fuck up all my bread now. I got a pocket full of room keys. Put my shooters and we bout to make a movie. Sleeping in mine, cause I feel like you on the low trying to creep on the side. But I, but I got too many, nothing to talk about. Thought to be in the side, nigga ain't working out. You say you ready to ride, I bring the burkins out. It's summertime, don't hide it, go ahead and work it out. And let your friends Snapchat, I see you twerking now. Then we go kick it right after our ladies' verses down. No rehearsing now, we finishing that. If friends come around, I promise I'll lay them down tight. Chicks, all kind of chicks, got too many. Lipstick on my pillowcase, not too milly. It's too many in my bed now. I can't help but fuck up all my bread now. I got a pocket full of room keys. Put my shooters and we bout to make a movie.
in the mind, give me time. Got a whole lot of swag, so these hoes wanna fly. I don't got a fucking manager, manage my own guap. Shit, I made it out the street, so this rap shit is nothing. If my son getting older in my pockets, is too. Selling woo-wop for the high, cause I got the juice. Water purified, I don't fuck around with that booth. Weed, This ain't new to me, movie scene, when we slide through, nigga, yeah You ain't cool as me, nigga, usually, I be draped up Bitch, always caked up, and when I'm talking cakey, I'm talking big racks You stressed out about the bitch, about to go bad I'm riding around, smoking weed in the jazz It's Capricorn season up in this You can always come on my love Forever 
what's up. I see your back to right. West Coast, I know you walking right. You don't know what you mean to me. Hey, hey, hey. Oh my God, I love this show. Hey, it's a hitter. Come back, Jai Paul. Where you at? Where you at? Come back to us. Back to us, Jai Paul. <laughs> Thank you. 
Son of a 